Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, David O'Brien. David accompanied Maximilian von Trottmansdorf's delegation to Westphalia, and he bribed a guard to ensure that they entered Munster in secret. Nice work, David. This, of course, is all a lie. If you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, or click on the link in the description below. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 78 of the Thirty Years' War. In the last episode, we fast-forwarded our narrative somewhat to bring to an end one of our significant story threads, the Dutch-Spanish War, otherwise known as the Eighty Years' War. As we've seen over countless episodes, the Dutch played a critically important role in furthering the Thirty Years' War as they chipped away at Spanish power until Madrid could go no further. The Dutch won their war with Spain, but it remained to be seen if they could win their peace. We will put a pin in the Dutch for now, though we'll certainly have cause to refer back to them in the story going forward. Now that the Dutch are a bit tidied up, though, we can focus our attention on the more active fronts, both at Westphalia and on the battlefield. Leonard Torstensen's Swedish army remained a critically important, powerful entity within the empire, and further to the west, the French were putting pressure on the emperor's main ally, Bavaria, to exit the war. Along the Pyrenees, the French joined their Catalonian allies to attack the Spanish, and it was broadly along these fronts, central Germany, the Rhine and the Pyrenees, that the campaigning season of 1646 rumbled on. The contest would be one of endurance, on the battlefield as much as at the peace table, and the stakes could not have been higher. Clearly, our story of the Thirty Years' War is winding down, but if you think the tale has presented all of its twists and turns, you ain't seen nothing yet. Without any further ado, I will take you to that peace table in late 1645, where the balance of power, both here and on the battlefield, continued to shift. By all accounts, Maximilian von Trottmansdorf had arrived late to the party. He didn't arrive under a pal of glory as his Spanish or French counterparts had done in Munster. Instead, he arrived on the 25th of November, 1645, virtually in secret. He avoided the pomp and time-wasting one-upmanship, but Trottmansdorf could not avoid the impression that his emperor was weakening. Why else would he send his closest personal friend to the negotiations after holding back for several years. The leader of the French delegation, the Duke of Longueville, was heard to welcome the arrival of Trottmansdorf, because he likely suspected this meant that the emperor was willing to give ground. For the French negotiators, 
pressure was easier to maintain on their enemies so long as the battlefield remained active, and for this reason, Longueville and his peers felt some anxiety that Trotmansdorf had come to make a secret peace with the Swedes, which would isolate France, or that he had come to tell the Spanish that the Emperor was on his last legs, which would have been both a blessing and a curse. When he met Trotmansdorf, Longueville may have been tempted to judge a book by its cover, and what a cover it was. According to the description by Wedgwood, Trotmansdorf was a thick-set, tall, singularly ugly man, with nothing of the aristocrat in his appearance. He was flat-nosed, with high cheeks and dark, very deep-set eyes, under thick, frowning brows, his face surmounted by a shabby wig, combed forward in a fringe that overhung his eyebrows. He must have been quite a sight, but if they were disarmed by his appearance, the French were equally disarmed by Trotmansdorf's good humour and evident command of the situation. Appearances, so it seemed, could be deceptive after all. And there was little mystery regarding what the French officials wanted. Among other matters, Cardinal Mazarin had focused his gaze on the Upper Rhine, which in geographical terms formed roughly the middle portion of France's border with the Empire. Along this border region, several important bishoprics and even some electors, such as that of Mainz, resided. But one of the more remarkable features of the landscape is the river itself. For the longest time, the Rhine formed the natural barrier of empires, from the Roman to the French, and a key strategic possession was a well-defended crossing which could guarantee trade and the transport of soldiers. Strasbourg, the modern home of the European Parliament, was one such vital crossing, and the region where Strasbourg lay, known as Alsace, was high on Cardinal Mazarin's list. Unfortunately for Mazarin, though, on more than one occasion, the Emperor had loudly proclaimed his refusal to give Alsace away. Habsburg interest in Alsace and its surrounding regions like the Breisgau, which surrounded Breisach, that vital fortress, and the Black Forest, which was dotted with mineral mines, or the Upper Rhine itself, which contained no shortage of castles and strongholds that protected the crossings, had been expressed several times throughout the centuries. One Habsburg official in the early 16th century attempted to paint a vivid picture for Emperor Max Emilian, who ruled from 1508 to 1519, by detailing the potential extent of the Emperor's powers if he could only unite the disparate territories of the Upper Rhine together for the glory of the Habsburg dynasty. This Habsburg official explained, The Elector Palatine, the Bishop of Strasbourg, the City of Strasbourg, the Margrave of Baden and make out of these same lands, together with His Majesty's own lands of Alsace, Sundgau and Breisgau and the Black Forest, a land which I consider would bear comparison with a powerful kingdom. If such were brought about, it would beyond doubt serve greatly to advance the Holy Empire and the House of Austria. In my opinion, one would not find many powerful kings whose kingdoms had equal might to these lands, with all their strengths and fruitfulness. Maximilian's descendants, over a century later, clearly took this lesson to heart, because Emperor Ferdinand III initially refused to relinquish Alsace to the French, and as we've seen, he'd even promised it to one of the cadet branches of the Habsburg family, the Innsbruck line. But then the war had changed and the sheer threat which a continuation of the conflict represented compelled Ferdinand to moderate his stance. According to the secret instructions Ferdinand had given Trotmansdorf, though, he was to give Alsace only as a last resort. It is better to achieve a peace, Ferdinand opined, 
even if it excludes another line of my house than to continue the war, the outcome of which is doubtful. This Innsbruck line was essentially to be paid off, or granted additional concessions in Carinthia, if they proved obdurate. Ferdinand would suggest other carrots first, but he was adamant in his instructions to Trotmansdorf that if Alsace was what stood between the Empire and peace, it would have to be handed over to France. So, where did this leave Trotmansdorf in the negotiations with the French? He knew he was empowered to concede it, and to bring French borders up to the Rhine in the process. What he did not know was whether the French would ask for all of Alsace, or just parts of it, or what form of authority they would demand in either case. There was certainly a possibility that the confusing jumble of contracts which enabled the Emperor to govern Alsace might put the French off. Perhaps they would demand only Strasbourg, so that crossing the river would be easier in the future. And if they demanded all of Alsace, what form of authority might they demand? Would they seek to annex all of it? Or would they attempt to assume the Emperor's rights in the region, and maintain a halfway home of annexation by ruling Alsace as an imperial fief? This latter option would give France a seat at the imperial diet, and thus additional influence in the Empire's affairs, but it was certainly complicated. Would it not be preferable to annex it outright, and accept no infringements upon the French king's authority? On the other hand, would a bullish annexation not intimidate and alienate the moderate Germans who the French were attempting to court? It was a difficult balancing act, and as a dilemma it underlines the different way that power and authority was considered at the time. As the historian Derek Croxton, who provided one of the best accounts of the Peace of Westphalia's negotiations, explained, It only makes sense if we appreciate the way authority in early modern Europe was cobbled together. Power did not flow from the people to the government, or from the ruler to the people, but instead consisted in something more like a bundle of contracts. These contracts granted a ruler, or other governing authority such as town council, rights, certain types of taxation, jurisdiction in particular cases, military protection and the right to garrison towns, and so forth. Each area had its own bundle of contracts that it had accumulated over time. Often several towns, counties or other administrative units would be grouped together for some purposes, such as military protection, but they might have separate agreements on other subjects, such as taxation. This description of the situation in Alsace was often reflected on the micro and macro level across the empire, and could become especially confusing when considering the rights of inheritance or traditions within a given region. There is good reason to suspect that the French were confused by the situation in Alsace as much as they were divided over how to proceed there. Being more a geographical than a legal entity, Alsace was governed by a complex arrangement of jurisdiction, city councils and a division between upper and lower, which confusingly corresponded to the south and north of the territory respectively. Considering the venom which the region was to evoke in Franco-German relations into the future, we should perhaps not be surprised that the solution reached at Westphalia was vague and, in many respects, nonsensical. Both sides ascended to the creation of a treaty which resembled something of a word soup. After a summer of discussions and fact-finding, the French delegation had apparently arrived at their solution. According to these satisfaction articles, several estates in Alsace were left independent, but somehow they were also to be subject to the authority of the French king. This contradictory arrangement, finalised in mid-September 1646, was created to grant the advantage to the side, which was strong enough to press their claim, 
but it was also designed so that both sides could claim a victory. Viewing the situation objectively though, it's plain that the French had achieved something of a coup. Not only was Alsace effectively theirs, but French jurisdiction had been pushed right up to the Rhine, and French soldiers would henceforth be able to cross over Strasbourg's bridge into the empire. And Alsace was not the only gain for France. Metz, Toul and Verdun, three bishoprics in the region, were also handed over, and a treaty was signed with the elector of Trier, a French ally, whereby the fortress of Philipsburg would contain a French garrison. France was also allowed to retain Brissac and the Breisgau region which surrounded it, granting them the strongest position on the Upper Rhine, and any potential threats to their position, which included other fortresses, were ordered destroyed. The Emperor waived his rights to the region, just as he committed to do so in secret with Trotmansdorf, and the high price for peace with France was at last apparently paid. Ferdinand even signalled his willingness to talk with the Spanish and undo some of the provisions of the Onate Treaty from 1619, which had originally granted Spain so many strategic positions along the Upper Rhine, including Alsace and the Franche Comte region to the south. Curiously though, even while the negotiation of this vast transfer of land to France had been concluded on the 13th of September 1646, the treaty was not actually signed. One might have suspected that this was due to the French intention to gamble that the battlefield would grant greater opportunities to expand upon these gains, and perhaps Mazarin didn't want to close the door on further expansion just yet. He would have found that his own officials, chief among them the Duke of Longueville, were wary of risking French gains on the battlefield. Longueville had written to Mazarin in April 1646, just as the Alsatian situation seemed impossible to resolve, to the effect that, I believe that we should not precipitate or risk anything, it being certain that if things remain as they are, our enemies will be reduced to the positions that we desire of them, instead of which a defeat, however small, will make our peace conditions much worse. This here was a fundamental tenet of the Westphalian negotiations, making use of military pressure and military victories to wrest additional opportunities for concessions from the enemy. While the tide did seem broadly to be turning against the Emperor and his Bavarian ally, it is interesting that Longueville did not believe the risk was worth it. If the French were defeated, the previous victory at Allerheim would be effectively undone, and additional pressures from Spain or from the Dutch and Swedish peace negotiations could compromise the French interest. The campaigning season of 1646 didn't contain many opportunities to effect any fundamental changes in the strategic position of either side. Unlike 1645, there was no disintegration of the Emperor's allies, and the Swedes didn't enjoy any meaningful triumphs either. If Longueville was nervous about French prospects, he was fortunate that there were few occasions in the year when much was truly put at risk. Perhaps this was because genuine progress was being made in Munster and Osnabrück in contrast to previous years. Since these satisfaction articles that the French arranged with the Emperor remained virtually unchanged in their incorporation of the Peace of Westphalia two years later, it seems likely that Mazarin delayed ratification for another reason, other than military opportunism. Perhaps Mazarin wanted to demonstrate some solidarity with his Swedish ally, According to their previous arrangement, after all, the French and Swedes were meant to resolve their negotiations with the Emperor at the same time. 
In practice, of course, there were great benefits to be accrued from finishing up before your ally had done the same. For Mazarin, it meant that the pressure upon France was significantly reduced since she had secured her major concessions from the Emperor. There was no longer any danger that either the Dutch or Swedish resolution would undermine French ambitions, and if anything, it meant that the Swedes were now under greater pressure to conclude their negotiations instead. But this was to be easier said than done. As complex and contradictory as the situation in Alsace had been, the Swedish tug-of-war over Pomerania seemed to defy all efforts at a resolution. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. From the moment Gustavus Adolphus had arrived in Pomerania in 1630, the region had been intertwined within Swedish demands. There was no escaping the fact that Sweden's possession of Pomerania would grant her an unrivaled strategic position both to control the Baltic and to interfere in Germany again in the future. Pomerania would be her German base, within which some of the most lucrative ports could be controlled and squeezed for their tolls. Considering the legion of benefits Sweden would accrue from her possession of the region, it's hardly surprising that a legion of powers lined up to oppose her. The Danes were eternally jealous of Swedish empowerment, the Dutch feared for their position in the Baltic trade routes, and the Poles didn't want Sweden sharing another land border with them in northern Europe. Though each of these powers were eager in their opposition, none was as bitter as the campaign mounted by the Elector of Brandenburg, Frederick William. Since he had succeeded his father in 1640, Frederick William had made it his mission to see that the Emperor respected the old commitments which bound Brandenburg to Pomerania by rights of inheritance. The childless Duke Bogoslav of Pomerania had not been allowed to pass his lands to Brandenburg as he had intended though, Instead, he had been bullied by the Swedish king into ceding it to his authority. When Duke Bogoslav died in 1637, the issue was unresolved and seemed even further from resolution 
even when Brandenburg exited the war in 1642. Although no longer vulnerable to rampaging Swedish armies, Frederick William's decision to leave the war meant that the emperor would no longer be obliged to bat for him at the peace negotiations. The Pomeranian quarrel animated the Swedish-Brandenburg hostility like no other, precisely because there was so much on the line. Just as the region would be so empowering and profitable for Sweden, possession of the region for Brandenburg would propel that state to new heights of importance, power and influence within the Holy Roman Empire, and it was for these interests as well as for the sanctity of older treaties that Frederick William campaigned. One principle in 17th century peacemaking was that of demanding more than you intended to get in the end, so that you could tactically give way on certain issues for the sake of retaining more valuable concessions. Sweden's delegation, led by Johan Oxenstierna and Johann Salvius, bought wholly into this approach. By late 1645, Sweden was officially laying claim to all of Pomerania, Silesia, the bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, which were formerly owned by Denmark, some Baltic islands, and the ports of Rostock and Wismar. So long as Brandenburg refused to give ground on any claims to Pomerania either, Oxenstierna maintained this uncompromising stance. The French negotiators must have felt that their ally was content to fight the war forever and demand subsidies from them as they did so. Once the French interests had been satisfied in mid-September then, the attentions of the French and of the Emperor turned to Pomerania with a renewed vigour. But could the intractable parties be brought to a compromise? One advantage which the French had was that the Swedish delegation was becoming increasingly divided between this uncompromising stance, advocated by the Swedish Chancellor on the one hand, and the more moderate, one could say, peace-hungry party, led by none other than the young Swedish Queen, Christina. Anxious to preserve Sweden's relationship with France, ambassadors had been swapped between Paris and Stockholm to reach some kind of solution outside the realm of the negotiations at Osnabrück. This certainly rubbed Chancellor Oxenstierna the wrong way, not least because it undercut his son, who was attempting to bring the Brandenburg delegation to heel, albeit with little success. Reportedly, in March 1646, when it was learned that Magnus de la Gardi had been sent in Sweden's name to Paris by authorization of the Queen, the embittered Chancellor, back in Stockholm, refused to even see Queen Christina for nearly a week. But to her credit, Queen Christina was as determined to build a power base for herself at home in Stockholm as she was to make her presence felt at Osnabrück. Once again, she did so by cutting between the official formula of the peace negotiations, and once again, this came at the expense of the Oxenstierna clan. Since Johann Oxenstierna was unlikely to be receptive to her approaches, the Queen focused her attentions upon Johann Salvius, his second-in-command, and she seems to have created in him a loyal agent. I put my entire confidence in you, Christina wrote in December 1646, that you will not allow yourself to be turned aside by anything, and by this I recommend to you, very expressly, the advancement of the peace. Soon she was even asking him for incredible favours. Could Salvius arrange for the transfer of Benefeld to Magnus de Benefeld was a Swedish enclave in Alsace that the French wanted to acquire and which Sweden had little chance of clinging to. Here, Christina apparently wanted to kill two birds with one stone by ceding this place to her heavily indebted favourite, 
regardless of the storm of controversy this would create. In early 1647, Christina and Oxenstierna engaged in a dispute about the religious state of Sweden, which only sharpened their additional disagreements over the shape of the peace negotiations. It seemed the Chancellor and Queen were destined always to argue and undermine each other. Christina would later tell the French ambassador that it was at this time she first thought of abdicating, but first she wished urgently to facilitate an end to the war. In April 1647, the Queen wrote with some haste to her man in Osnabrück, Salvius, to the effect that From your letters I know of your efforts to terminate a long, dangerous and bloody war. I also know from many circumstances how a certain party who, not being able entirely to upset the treaties, is trying to delay them. I will conduct myself in such a way with this contrary party that the whole earth will know that the fault was not on my side. I will also make the whole universe see that the Royal Chancellor is not able, alone with his little finger, to make the world turn around. As if proving her point, at the same time this gentle letter was sent to Salvius, the Queen sent a far more threatening message to that certain party led by the junior Oxenstierna. No doubt the letter was the end result of several months of conflict with the Chancellor back in Stockholm. It was certainly easier for the Queen to criticise her powerful Chancellor on the basis of his failure to make peace than to properly challenge his domestic power base or alter his foreign policy course. The Queen's letter on the 10th of April 1647 thus reads, Without trifling any more, you are to conduct negotiations to a desirable end. You are no longer to allow affairs to drag at length as has happened up to now. If this is not done, it will be your business to see how you will be answerable to God, to the estates of the realm and to me. Do not allow yourselves to be turned from this end by the ideas of ambitious people, at least if you do not wish to incur my deepest displeasure and indignation. You may be sure that then neither authority nor the support of great families will prevent me from showing the whole world the displeasure that I feel for such proceedings which are the destitute of judgment. By the summer of 1647, limited apologies were made, and Chancellor Oxenstierna warned the Queen of those who wish to create trouble between sovereigns and their servitors. But Christina did not dismantle her growing power base, which counted among its ranks the famed Marshal Torstensen, who had since retired due to poor health. Mazarin was by no means excluded from the gossip and rumour which swirled around Europe regarding the relationship between Chancellor and Queen. Mazarin recognised that French influence was unpopular in Stockholm and that the Chancellor wished to protect his large brood of sons and that Christina's marital prospects remained a hot topic. Yet, notwithstanding their disagreements, Cardinal Mazarin wrote to his subordinates in Munster that The Chancellor Oxenstierna is so consummate a minister that although he seems to have lost credit, he will still continue to have a large part in the administration of the realm and the Queen, who desires to instruct herself in great affairs, could not find a source of knowledge more lively and reliable than he. Indeed, whatever credit he lost for his son's tardiness in making peace was surely recouped with the news that, by early February 1647, Brandenburg and Sweden had finally settled their differences over Pomerania. The compromise had been a long time coming, and was a result of the Oxenstiernas effectively threatening to seize all of Pomerania if the Brandenburg elector didn't give some ground. 
in the end with Trotmansdorf indicating that he would accept Swedish occupation of all of Pomerania if it would bring about a lasting peace, Frederick William seems finally to have gotten the message. He switched his policy in a flash from one of stubborn resilience to compromise, but the climb down was far from a humiliation. After spending months fighting for Pomerania, the message had been received that only with large concessions and compensation would Brandenburg be actually happy to let Pomerania go. As a result, Frederick William received a litany of gains far in excess of what he could reasonably have expected in 1640. His policy of driving a hard bargain had made him few friends, but it had brought him new duchies in Mecklenburg, once owned by Wallenstein, and at Halberstadt, where Swedish Marshal Johann Banner had died in 1641. Brandenburg also received its share of Pomerania in the east, a strip of coastal land more than twice the size of Sweden's western Pomerania portion, but less productive, and crucially excluding the lucrative city of Stetten, that old Pomeranian capital. To compensate him further, Frederick William gained two additional bishoprics at Minden and Kamen, which he later secularised, thereby effectively expanding his writ into these former church lands. But Frederick William was unwilling to accept pure diplomatic carrots alone. He attempted to seize some for himself by invading one of his German neighbours. Miniature conflicts among the German princes were irritating distractions for those at Westphalia, but there was relatively little the major powers could do. When Amalie Elizabeth of Hesse Castle invaded her neighbour, Hesse Darmstadt, in late 1644, she forced the Emperor and then the Swedes to move troops around the board to compensate. So it was with the Elector of Brandenburg. His invasion of Berg in November 1646 threatened to derail sensitive discussions over the division of German territories, but in the end, Frederick William's vaunted, newly recruited and drilled army achieved, practically, very little. Interestingly, this conflict among German princes was an outcome of the Ulick cleve Succession War, which, if you can remember, had plagued anxious European onlookers as far back as 1608. Negotiations over who would succeed to the wealthy but disconnected duchies of Ulick, Cleve, Mark, Berg and Ravensburg were animated by the appearance of Spain on one side and France on the other, but the conflict was eventually solved in 1614 with a treaty partitioning the lands in question. Frederick William had invaded the lands of one of these recipients, Duke Wolfgang William of Fals Newburg, to settle disputes which dated back to this partition, but he was far from successful and he only gained a slice of Ravensburg for his troubles. The act also made him more vulnerable to Swedish threats, but few could deny that Frederick William, almost despite himself, had done well. By pushing and relenting at just the right time, Frederick William had expanded his realm by over a third, and had laid the foundations for the later expansion of Brandenburg, Prussia, which were to pass into historical legend, and make him a legend in the process, at the so-called Great Elector. As 1646 turned to 1647, it was evident that the Thirty Years' War was approaching its end. France had been guaranteed Alsace, Sweden had been promised Pomerania, and the two more troubling challenges to the Emperor had thus been confronted and resolved. Further afield, the Dutch-Spanish War was also winding down, with a truce announced shortly after news of Sweden's satisfaction was gained, which proved durable enough to last the remainder of the war. 
Only in portions of Germany were the Swedish army under its new commander, Gustav Wrangel, who had replaced Torstensen, marched, or along the Pyrenees where the Franco-Spanish conflict continued, did the war truly remain alive. In amongst these conflicts, opportunistic Germans continued to move, determined that the most troubling question of all, the fate of the Palatine family, should finally acquire its resolution. And in the next episode, we're going to take that troubling question up. So I hope you'll join me then. Until next time though, history friends, thanks so much for joining me here. My name is Zach, this has been episode 78 of the 30 Years War, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.